Hello everybody and welcome to episode 8 of Everyday Eternal. I'm joined by Sean O'Brien, Matt Pavlik, and Jacob Corey. Today, our subject is control. We've got three main things we want to address. Basically, what is a control deck? What makes a deck a control deck? If I want to play control, how do I want to build? What are the different types of control decks? And we're going to have some examples, not just current, but a little bit of historical. We'll get old man Sean in on that. And then the fundamentals of playing control, which is things like how you're going to want to play when you play control. Because obviously playing control is going to be a lot different than playing a deck like a combo deck or a deck that wants to play creatures and bash in. No, we want to play the long game and make sure our opponent just doesn't get to play spells or doesn't get to have creatures on board. And that's the kind of thing that, as I said in our first episode, I just absolutely love. So, what is a control deck? Who wants to take this one? Okay, so uh, let me take a stab at it. I'm probably going to not hit the nail on the head, but uh, I'll take a, uh, a shot. What is control? Um, if we boil it down to, let's say, like a one-sentence uh, you know, idea, uh, a control deck is really trying to limit the meaningful options um, that the opponent has to interact in the game. Um, does that in a number of uh, potential uh, strategies. One of them that's uh, historical is uh, permission, for instance, just countering any of the spells. Uh, Sean, I know you've uh, you've got some ideas on whatever idea what uh, control deck could be, or Matt. Sure. So, what I think a control deck is usually refers to a deck that is kind of slower. It's not trying to win in the first couple of turns. It's trying to build itself up to have a strong position kind of in the mid to late game. And it doesn't get its value from kind of like playing a small creature and kind of running with it. It's about getting your value off of like big extra ones. So, having say like a moat or Supreme Verdict or Terminus or Pernicious Deed or whatever. Anything where you're getting your extra ones as your as your big finishes and then having the game end kind of in the long game with some sort of like say Jace the Mind Sculptor or even say like Decree of Justice back in the day or whatever. Yeah, I think I think control is typically associated with blue. I think we automatically associate it with blue. Um but you know, control can be uh a little bit of each. It could be control on the stack, it could be control of resources. Um so it's not always blue, and the history of Magic decks shows it a variety of control decks, from traditional blue-white to mono-black to... I would I would even argue that there are some colorless control decks, and those are, you know, more like prison strategies, but they're not controlling the stack, they're just controlling each player's resources. But I think the common theme is definitely defense first, you know, the deck isn't flooded with win conditions, and... Uh, uh, and it's usually about getting some card advantage, and different decks do that in different ways. So, uh, yeah, I think we've have, have. Do you think all we've addressed what a control deck is enough that we can kind of move on to what some examples are because those kind of fit together? Yeah, I think we've had. Uh, we'll need some examples to really set the tone for that conversation. So let's jump in. So we just said that control doesn't have to be blue, but I say fuck that. Blue is awesome. So some examples of of uh, control decks. In general, a lot of them, especially in recent history, have been blue. Um, your blue-white miracles deck, um, and before Esper got so grindy and playing creatures, like, why would you want to do that? Blue-white uh, Stoneforge was a really great example of what a control deck really wants to be. In general, a lot of them only played, their only win conditions were four Stoneforge Mystics, fetching up one or two equipment, one of which was Batterskull. The rest of it was force of wills it was brainstorms to draw more force of wills it was spell pierce it was spell snare this is an example of as we said control on the stack for the most part what you're trying to do is stop them from having anything from even getting it onto the board once it was on the board uh you generally play something like four swords of plowshares uh a couple of what we would call wrath effects because of wrath of god the classic example now supreme verdict becoming a little more vo uh in vogue um, and that's how you would keep keep things off the board and basically wait until you're ready to win. A lot of players would go for these uh, Stoneforge decks and they would think of it almost as a combo deck. They would say, I'm going to try and get a Stoneforge on turn two, get my Batterskull out turn three. And it's not that anything is wrong with having a Batterskull on turn three. Obviously a 4-4 lifelink vigilance is pretty good. But really what you're trying to do is exhaust their resources and say, okay, now that you're done attempting to play Magic, I'm going to go ahead and win. Um, 
Matt, do you want to give us another example of a uh, control deck? Yeah, so another control deck would be like, say, Bug Landstill, or Bug Control, uh, which basically tries to use Pernicious Deed as its board control element. So you still have the standard kind of Force of Will, Spell Pierce, Counterspell, um, sometimes it's even running like Demir Charm, uh, but you're also running Jace as your main win condition, and Manlands, uh, but you run Pernicious Deed as your sweeper. So you basically try to counter what you can't really control, or what won't be killed by Pernicious Deed, and then you just run the other deck over with Deed on, say, like, 5, wiping their entire board, and then you just get them, while using the standstill engine as your card advantage engine. So instead of being so stack-based, you're more board-based. I like card advantage. Uh, I mean, I love drawing cards. So how is that being incorporated into a control deck, for instance, Sean? Well, control decks started, you know, in the mid-90s when, you know, right after the schism, uh, based mostly on the principle of, of card advantage. So back then you had, well, you had the obvious ones like Ancestral Recall, Brain Geyser, Mind Twist. Um, I mean, actually, the first World Championship deck was a Mind Twist deck, which was, at its heart, a card advantage deck. I use, dark, I use a Mind Twist. I Mind Twist you for three or four. I only used one card. You're down four cards. Therefore, I have more options. So... You know, a lot of the initial... Also, the second World Championship deck was a control deck. More of a traditional blue-white deck. Sarah Angels, uh, a whole pile of counterspells, um, mana drains, etc. And then cards that uh, got you card advantage, not necessarily through drawing, but um, the card would lock out a number of an opponent's options or cards so that it gave you... And you can throw a spear and kill me because I'm going to use an internet buzzword, but virtual card advantage. So, so a card like Moat, for example, it's one card, but if there are two Tarmogoyfs and a Nimble Mongoose stuck behind it, you, in some sense, have negated three of your opponent's cards by using just one of your cards. So the old school blue-white control decks kind of worked on that principle. Um, all their cards they got maximum usage out of. Uh, most of their cards were at least they're at least one for ones, sometimes two for ones or more in the case of mode or mind twist. And uh, and as Matt said earlier, they weren't looking to win in the early game. They were looking to build resources and eventually just create an inevitability where uh, they could safely play the one of their win conditions. And some of them are embarrassing by today's standards. But things like through the years, you had Sarah Angel. Fireball, Mirror Universe, Morphling, Rainbow of Free, all the way up through Keeper and some of the other kind of 2000 era control decks, um, to like something like Entreat the Angels or Jace that we see today. The board state, when they actually go to cast their win condition, is sort of under control at that point. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's, it's not always card advantage is, is central, but it's not always obvious that a card is giving you card advantage. Rest in Peace, another great example. You cast Rest in Peace. Uh, every Tarmogoyf your opponent draws while that Rest in Peace is in play is is Bone Flute. You know, you've gained kind of virtual card advantage. So, and, um, you know, I still think Blue-White is the, the best example, you know, of control. But if you were to slam underneath control, you, you, you'd have the stack control. I think you'd have Prison is another control strategy. And then sort of a fringe one that hasn't really been good in a number of years would be hand control, hand disruption, um, discard. You're controlling uh, your opponent's resources before they even get a chance to cast the spells. And discard decks aren't good anymore for a number of reasons, but uh, I still would consider that to be sort of like a control deck. Yeah, one of my, think, one of my more favorite uh, examples of an, a control strategy or just kind of exemplifying that is uh, the use of IC Manipulator to manage your opponent's board state. Um, and also along with uh, Maze of If too, both those cards really play into a creature control strategy which has really played a big part throughout Magic's history. Um, essentially using the ice, Icy Manipulator to tap down an opponent's creature um, and if the opponent wants to be able to continue attacking they need to deploy a second or a third threat and walk right into uh, for instance a Wrath of God um, and that way you'd be able to employ a recurring source of card advantage in order to gain an, an advantage over your opponent. So one of the cards we want to talk about is uh, 
kind of the new face of Control. Um, it's hard to find a deck that can play this card and is playing Control and isn't playing this card. And that's Jace the Mind Sculptor. Obviously, among the best cards ever printed, not many cards have ever been banned in Standard. But Jace the Mind Sculptor has because he's awesome. He's also the face of From the Vault 20, which is supposed to be a historical product trying to show you what the face of the game was like for the entire 20 years of its history since I was a wee lad. And uh, so obviously, very good. And four abilities, first time ever on a Planeswalker. You've basically, I would almost say three and a half. The first one is, uh, is its plus ability, which is its half ability. And it's nice to be able to control the top of someone's deck, but that's not really as relevant as the rest of it. Its second ability, which is the Brainstorm ability, obviously super good. You're talking about card advantage, um, you get to decide what you're going to get next. Played with fetch lands like you would in Legacy or Vintage, you get to get rid of all of the super crappy cards you have. Uh, that's the reason it was so good in Standard, is there were so many shuffle effects with Stoneforge Mystic and with uh, Squadron Hawk. The uh, third ability, Bouncing a Guy, Protection. Um, it's commonly been said that the best Planeswalkers always have, one, a way to protect themselves, and two, a way to win the game. See Elspeth Knight Errant as an excellent example. So, protecting itself, getting rid of a big fatty. Um, Termogoyf is a common target. Um, unfortunately, Emrakul the Aeon's Torn is not, but Grizzlebrand is. And then the last ability, which... Uh, basically says you win the game. I would read the whole text, but what it says is you win the game. So I say three and a half abilities because the first two abilities that are Brainstorm and uh, Bouncing a Guy, and then three and a half, you get to look at the top of their deck and eventually just win the game. You see this in Bug, you see it in Blue-White, you see it, you used to see it in Stoneforge, they're kind of moving away from it as they move towards more mid-range, but man, it just does, it does everything that a control card really wants to do. It slowly wins the game, it grinds out card advantage, and it puts their dudes back where they belong, which is in someone else's hand. Yeah, Jace is awesome. <laughs> I don't think I can top that. Um, I think a lot of times, too, with, uh, with Jace, you're able to... You, because you have the flexibility of using any of the three abilities, um, you really have a lot of options. Um, and that's what really Control wants to see. And it wants to be able to play an adaptable and flexible game um, and best react to the opponent's cards. So, for instance, um, let's say you already have all the answers you need in your hand and your opponent has an empty board well go ahead take that opportunity and fate seal your opponent make sure to lock them out from any potential new uh, new additional threats or for instance uh, let's say you're a little behind on cards or your hand is pretty weak um, brainstorm ability is able to pull you right back into the game um, hopefully you'll be able to find a, a couple of uh, big bomb spells um, maybe even a wrath who knows um, and even the bounce ability sometimes uh, you can play a little bit of a tempo element and um, you know just forcing your opponent to recast all his creatures every turn for you know maybe not every turn but two or three turns is enough to slow your opponent's development back and um, allows you to also get back into the game so Jace is really good at doing all three of those parts at pretty much every turn Another really important thing that the Bouncing a Dude ability does is you're bouncing a dude, they're almost certainly going to be recasting it. Well, you're playing blue. I frequently find myself waiting to bounce a guy until I have a counterspell in hand because what I'm doing is I'm taking two turns to say, you're going to spend all of that mana, and then that guy's going to go to your graveyard. Uh, the other thing I found myself doing a lot recently is I've been playing the Energy Field Miracles build. And because you're more or less safe behind that wall, just sitting there drawing cards and drawing cards and drawing cards. And at a certain point, there's nothing anyone can do to you because you've got seven cards in hand. You're playing counter spells. You've probably got several lands in play. And I don't even need to tick him up to slowly win. I'm just going to eventually draw what I need while not letting you play magic, which, as I've said, is exactly how I prefer to play magic. So also, too, talking about some of the other Planeswalkers, it seems like most of the control decks have switched to Planeswalker win conditions, whether that be, you know, Jace or Sorin or Elspeth or even Garruk as something that they could, you know, build up to. Liliana as well, depending on the colors that you're in. Uh, and kind of moved away from that one big kind of bomb spell or 
that one creature. So, for example, Sarah Angel used to be really, really good in the old kind of vintage keeper decks, you know, as a two of great card. However, a little bit fragile, you know, dies to a piece of removal, dies to whatever. So, uh, back in, I guess it would be like 2006, 2007, the uh, blue-white control decks used to be running Decree of Justice. So Decree of Justice, basically, you would either, you know, cycle and make a whole ton of, you know, 1-1s, or you would actually cast it and make a whole ton of 4-4s. So that's also pretty good. However, it leaves you open to the deck holding up a counterspell or, or multiple counterspells against your, you know, one of two win conditions. So moving to Planeswalkers to have something that's more of a long-term threat as well as a win condition, something that they have to deal with, put your opponent on the defensive, is something that the control decks have moved to, and I think it's definitely a much better direction. Sean, if you want to continue? Yeah, I mean, you hit it on the head. That the, 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 It's not necessarily that the... Uh... The deck needs, uh, you know, needs to be blue. But any any of those decks can can use those planeswalkers as con uh, to play a control role in a game. So, um, but uh, I think the 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 overriding theme is still the same. You know, if you if you land a planeswalker like Soren or Garuk, um, good Garuk, you're you're gonna get card advantage out of it, right? If you're making wolves or vampires. Um, it's going to need to take a card from your opponent to remove it. Um, so it's you know the same th the same uh, same thing applies. Uh, what about, for instance, the uh, the non-permission based control decks? So uh, I think Sean mentioned uh, mud or stacks um, types of decks that pox. Uh, pox is another great example of, of decks that play non-traditional control but are able to. Um, essentially control maybe a board state or what kind of options you have. Yeah, a card like Chalice of the Void. If you play a Chalice of the Void and pass the turn in most Legacy Opens or Star Cities, uh, you may have in fact blanked, you know, 16 cards in your opponent's deck. So you've, you've not only controlled their strategy, you're controlling the stack with a permanent in this case. You're also getting, you know, card advantage out of uh, that Chalice of the Void, because there are going to be a number of dead cards that are stranded in their hand. Um, that kind of deck also wants to control resources, typically, through the most obvious one, Wasteland, but um, there were times, and it's still a decent card, but things like Smokestack, Tangle Wire, uh, Winter Orb, any of those cards can help control the board, control resources, and your, your deck, much like the old blue-white decks, is built to take advantage of uh, the environment that you're creating by playing these lock pieces. So um, one of the things I would like to point out here is that these separations we've given for different types of decks, obviously none of these are hard and fast. You don't, you're not always this type of deck or always this other type of deck. And I think these taxing effects, at least right now, are very much where you see these combinations. So for example, with the taxing effects, you kind of see that a little bit in Maverick, which is kind of control, kind of aggro. You see it a little bit in Death and Taxes, which is a little bit com or a little bit control and a little bit aggro. Um, and you see it with decks that are going to be playing a lot of discard spells, decks like Bug, also decks like Deathblade that are playing Thoughtseize, Inquisition, Duress. So you're playing a little bit of control with a little bit of other stuff. Um, in the past, some of these have been a little bit better, like uh, Stax uh, has won a couple of uh, opens in the in a couple years ago. Really, really good in Vintage, where you're going to go turn one, I play a Lodestone Golem, what are you going to do about it? Obviously, all of these are kind of like this. For example, Blue-White, we said, uh, is a control deck. Some people take it a little more aggro-y. I just wanted to take the moment to point out that all of these things kind of blend into different sections of magic. Yeah, and, and kind of on the back of that too, you see a lot of examples of uh, not necessarily a, a complete control strategy, but elements of it. Um, for instance, uh, Tempo Threshold shows a lot of that. Uh, it plays a lot of counter spells, so it has a, a very big counter wall, but at the same time, it plays it wins with uh, a few aggro creatures. Um, another example of it may be. Um, like the bug shardless decks, which tend to play more of a control deck with very few counter spells, but uh, more hand disruption and 
and just deploying a lot of cards and a lot of card advantage with the Cascade and Ancestral Visions. Um, finally, you have a deck like Pox, which is really just cutting you off from any resources. Um, this is more of a strategy that's kind of been antiquated in, uh, in modern design, but uh, it's still very, very potent if you're able to deploy the correct sequencing. So for instance, against a lot of decks that deploy uh, one-mana creatures like Deathrite Shaman, Noble High Arc, Delver, um, getting that smallpox out on turn two sets them back two cards, uh, three cards if you count uh, the discarded one as well, um, essentially setting them, uh, resetting them back to turn one. Yeah, so I think when you're playing the control deck, you know, you, you have to put yourself in the control role, which is um, recognizing that in a lot of these builds, you, you have limited win conditions, and so you have to kind of value those uh, more highly than you would a Curd Ape in a zoo deck, let's say. Um, so it's important, I think, for the control player to put himself in a mindset of of trying to look at each of the cards in his hand, and uh, I hate to use another internet term, but really put a lot of value on it. Um, you don't necessarily need to look at your sorts to plowshares. Look at the, the first creature your opponent slams and automatically exile it. Uh, you need to understand that you have, you know, other ways to get, uh, you know, examples. I guess in today's game, you'd have Supreme Verdict, Engineered Explosives. You have Terminus. So, you know, you need to understand as the control player that you, you don't necessarily need to react to everything that your opponent does. Um, so I think that's really important, and that's a much different mindset than something like uh, an aggro player would take. So a goblins player or a rug delver player, um, you know, they're they're looking to deploy a threat and force their opponent to react to it. So I think the control player's mindset is a lot different, and I think it holds true for the three flavors of control. You know, stack control, resource control, uh, and even hand disruption. Um, hand disruption maybe is the is the one that's again. A little bit of an outlier, but and can be a little bit more aggressive. But I think that's the basic mindset. And I think a little part of it, at least for the people who are a little more, I'm gonna call myself amateurish, is uh, I wanna I wanna do something crazy. I wanna be a Timmy, and I wanna do some stupid combo like entreat the angels, or spending five turns on Jace, or Helm Leylining you. And so I wanna play control because I'm gonna say no. You're not going to play Magic. I'm going to spend the next 10 turns assembling this dumb combo, and then I'm going to go off. And as an example of that, um, when I first got back into Magic, because like many people, I quit and came back like 10 years later when I had money to actually buy cards, uh, my first deck was a five-color stacks deck. And part of the reason I liked playing five-color stacks is it was kind of, no, I don't want you to interrupt me. I'm just going to slowly get out a fatty that I'm going to beat you with, and you're not going to have any basic lands in play because it's a Sundering Titan. Um, now I'm playing blue-white control because I'm kind of, no, I don't want you to I don't want you to play anything. I'm going to do one of my ridiculous combos. Like when I played, uh, I played uh, Counterthopters for quite a long time, and it was just kind of my MO. I'm just going to get like a thousand Thopters, and what are you going to do about it? And even if you Engineer do something play. about it, even if you do something about it, I just have this one other backup condition, and what are you going to do about that one? And I hate to come across as the douchebag who doesn't want their opponent to play Magic, but that's exactly what I think of every single combo player. So fuck those guys. Wow, that was strong. I mean, it sounds like... Yeah, it, it sounds like, like I had, like, yeah, seven like, or eight ounces of Macallan before I started on this beer. Yeah, yeah, or a bunch of Tez players beat you up in middle school and stole your fucking you know, <laughs> lunch money. So, how do I play control? What, uh, what's my mindset going into a matchup? Um, it's been a while since I picked up a control deck. Uh, not gonna, not gonna lie here. Grizzlebrand's a hell of a card, but um, when I did uh, touch up on it, roughly about uh, twelve months ago. I was uh, I was mostly playing uh, miracles, not miracles. That was too early, too late. Uh, thopters. Um, generally, it's the same idea. Uh, a lot of times, you're just deploying your threats very hesitantly. Um, for instance, like humility or moat. Um, really, just trying to get the maximum value off your opponent's uh, blunders. Really, um, a lot of times, to utilizing your life as a resource. So uh, just like Sam mentioned, not really uh, answering the first, the first 
threat, but uh, possibly the second or third one. Um, especially with the advent of Jace uh, in control decks, you're able to kind of tempt your opponent to overextend into a, a Wrath. And uh, I mean, that's really a classic example of an aggro deck uh, against control is uh, you don't walk into uh, mass removal needlessly. Um, another aspect that I've uh, also kind of learned from that is to uh, really identify which spells your opponents are casting um, are really going to impact you, your board, or your plan of victory. So I think my mindset for playing control is asking the question, basically anytime anything happens is does it matter? So I play a land and I fetch a basic and I do nothing and I say pass and my opponent plays a nimble mongoose and I look at the cards in my hand and I have to ask myself, does this card matter? Does this matter? I have 19 life left, I've got several turns, it's still a 1-1, do I care? No, don't worry about it. Basically, I want to get myself up to a point where I can, you know, say if I'm playing Miracles against Maverick or something, where I'm like, okay, let's set up the Terminus. All I'm worried about is, are have you played a Gaddictig? Is that a Gaddictig that's going to be coming down? Yes, kill it or counter it. If not, I'm getting my Terminus ready. And eventually, at some point, when my opponent is disheveled and and sad and ready to give up, that's when I play Jace the Mind Sculptor and say, okay, let's fate seal you. Or, okay, you're ready to concede now. Let's entreat the angels for six at end of turn and then untap with them. Oh, that's aggressive. And... Oh, yeah, I'm, that's... I've seen uh, entreat the angels... Being this cast uh, for two um, to start turning the game around. I mean, two four four angels is pretty I'm fucking solid clock. Best case scenario, I'm saying. Right. So the point is, I think I think asking yourself as the control player, you have to s basically see: does is my whatever my opponent's doing doesn't matter. If it doesn't matter, don't worry about it. Don't fret over it. Deal with it later on, or try to get a few more targets in your X for ones or whatever you plan to be doing or whatever you're doing to control the game. Whatever your actual game plan is, stick to the game plan. So as an example of that, uh, I think a really interesting thing I've had lately, like I said, playing Blue White Miracles is uh, I'm playing three Rest in Peace and three Enlightened Tutor. The only creature that Rug plays that I care about is Delver because I'm going to get a Rest in Peace that's going to make their Termogoyf and their Nimble Mongoose very, very sad. So, moving on to our next topic is actually how to play a control deck. So, if I'm playing, say, Blue-White Miracles, because this seems to be the the most conspicuous control deck in the format right now. I mean, you're not seeing a ton of, say, Bug Land still doing really well. Uh, you're not seeing Bug Control or Esper Control, that's not, say, Esper Blade or whatever, doing really well. So, we're going to talk about, say, Blue-White-Red Miracles or Blue-White-Black Miracles. And kind of how do you play against the format? So one of the things, that one of the advantages that the, uh, that at least this control deck has in the format is it has between six and eight basics, which is an insane amount. And you're thinking, you might be thinking, well, what am I do? Why are you playing so many basics? Well, the format is full of stifle, wasteland, um, this, that, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just a ton of non-basic hate. So if you can have a stable mana base going from, you know, turn one, I play a basic. Turn two, I fetch for a basic. Turn three, I have another basic. Turn four, oh look, it's another basic. I'm hitting my land drops every turn, which is one of the key things about playing a control deck. Your land drops matter. In a mid-range deck or an aggro deck, you might miss your turn three land drop and you'll be okay. However, in the control deck, you want to have mana every turn. It does not matter. And always fetch basics if possible know when to fetch as well. These these are little things that I think a lot of people have forgotten because Control hasn't really been a very viable archetype in Legacy in the past maybe three to five years. It's kind of been, you know, waning quite a bit. So I think one of the key things as, say, a Miracles player that you should know is, you know... How do you use fetch Brainstorm? <laughs> How do you Brainstorm is an entire... That's an entire episode. Yeah, um, I, think, I think that one's for sure... I mean, you could brainstorm differently based on the archetype. So, in a control mindset, for instance, Matt, how would you brainstorm? 
Well, you want to you don't want to use your brainstorm as in the like say turn one I played an island end of turn brainstorm. That might be strictly incorrect. It might be correct depending on what your hand is, but usually you want to save your brainstorms for am I looking for an answer to blow up my opponent? Am I looking for a terminus? Am I trying to put something back? Am I trying to see new cards? What am I trying to do with that brainstorm? Am I just brainstorming for value? That's probably not what you want to do. You don't want to be wasting your key brainstorms just on that. You're not a you're not a rug delver who has ponders and brainstorms where you could say just oh I'm tr I'm looking for more gas, scoop up some more cards and let's just go. Sean? Yeah, kind of on that note, you see a lot of rug players who are novice just continue to play lands out and um they don't necessarily need to. They don't realize they shouldn't be doing that, but um the the blue white control player wants to make a land drop pretty much every turn for the first oh probably six to seven turns, right? So, um, you know, sometimes having to use, like, a main phase brainstorm to ensure that you hit a land drop is worth it, too. And this is one point that makes control a lot different than most legacy decks, is that you want a kind of land-heavy hand, because, as Sean said, you want to hit land drops every turn for about six turns. A two-land hand, unless it's got a lot of free counterspells, probably isn't that great. So, also, too... Because you're playing a deck that has basic lands and you're trying to make these land drops, the question is, when are you when are you actually fetching? So in a deck that plays, say, nine fetch lands and six basics and some duels and whatever, if you're playing in a format like you are now with rug tempo, say blue-white-red tempo, doesn't matter. They may be playing Stifle. So the question is, I've seen a lot of control players just really just play into the dazes, into the spell pierces, into the stifles. What you need to realize is you need to sit back and you just need to very slowly build up your mana base. Turn one, play a land and pass. Turn two, play a land and pass. Turn three, it may be wise just to play another land and pass. When are you fetching? So if you were to fetch at the just during your turn for value, you know, I'm going to fetch a basic and go get another, uh, say, island or your second planes or whatever your hand is. It doesn't matter. Is there a point in doing that on your turn? What if they stifle you? Well, does that do anything? I kind of want to add to that, for instance, too. Um, now you bring up a very interesting and good point about when to crack your fetches. And it, that is, when are you actually being pushed to utilize your mana? And I think the some of the best openings that I've ever experienced with Control Deck have been essentially playing my first spell on turn 4. Maybe that's kind of jumping the gun, because uh, if the first spell you're casting is on turn 4, you've probably won as a Control Deck already. But anyways, um, being able to essentially make those land drops, um, like you said, Matt, and really identifying when you need to uh, start fetching, that that's a huge point. I mean, you're First of all, you're masking what uh, what colors you may be potentially playing. Granted, it's going to be some strong blue variant, but uh, are you running red, for instance, or black, or green, or white? Um, being able to sit behind those fetch lands also limits the information that your opponent has to work with. So, I mean, you can also... So, speaking of fetching... Um, when do you actually, when you're pressed for your mana, how or when are you doing this? So I think one of the key things that a lot of people don't realize is the tempo decks are trying to out-tempo you. Therefore, why would you let them stifle on their turn when they've got, on your turn, when they have mana open and it doesn't cost them anything? Having that mana used on your turn doesn't do anything for them. They just get to untap, they get to draw, and they get to do whatever they're doing. If you, say, crack on their upkeep, at least if they're going to stifle you, you've used up a mana on that turn. Maybe they won't be able to deploy Tarmogoyf that turn. Or if you have, like, four fetches out, they won't have four stifles. And if they do, well, their hand is probably garbage because they don't have anything else. But the point is, you have to create positions when you're the control player when it's very disadvantageous for your opponent to, say, try and get you or daze you, or spell pierce you. If you're playing your first, uh, say, Sensei's Divining Top in turn 3, they need to have a spell pierce and a daze to be countering that, or a force of will pitching a card. You're avoiding all of that that tempo 
flavor that they're trying to get out of you just by just waiting and biding your time. And we discussed this a little bit last week when we said that the fetch in response to a fetch is an example of a really great way to play around that stifle. Because if you fetch while they have a fetch open, that fetch is going to get an island that's going to get a stifle. And even if it doesn't, you should just assume it does because Rug Delver lives to just make your life terrible. You know, one of the earliest uh, control decks was called the Deck, and it used to have a play called the Sarah Gambit where... Like in game two, you would side out a lot of your creature control. And what they would do is just play one of their few threats out really fast, figuring that you had taken out all your creature removal. Um, so it's kind of like they would take an aggro roll. One of the cards that, that Blue-White has access to that can kind of let them be a little bit more aggro um, is Vendillion Click. And Vendillion Click's gotten a lot better now with the, the new Legend rule. Um... But it's a card that a control deck can use to confuse its opponent, to take advantage of a vile activation, to um, take advantage of a tutor, let's say. Um, and it's a super versatile card that lets a control deck play an aggro role. You know what I mean? Sam, I know you masturbate to a poster of Vidalian Click on your wall. Can you talk a little bit more about it? <laughs> well... <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny these allocations, Senator, as I have no recollection. I will say, I actually have pulled the Vendayan Clicks out of my Miracles deck, but I used to play three. Um, Vendayan Click, for me, in the control deck, did two major things. Um, a lot of times it got one of their, not necessarily combo pieces, but I'm making air quotes like Dr. Evil combo pieces, like they would Stoneforge Mystic, get a Batter Skull, I'd say, okay, that's fine, and then I would go ahead and just take that Batter Skull away from them. Um, you wouldn't, for instance, try to wait till they activate Stoneforge Mystic to get the most amount of value? Well, you know, value! sometimes I'm just not as good a player as you are, Kobe. Recall that Vendillion Click has Flash, so if you want to get your opponent's Jace, oh yeah, get in there, attack for three. Yeah, a lot of times I use it almost as a combination uh, Jitaxian Probe slash Shitty Duress. <laughs> Because, especially like against combo decks, it's like, oh, I recognize that this is the turn you're going to go off. I'm going to risk that the card you draw will be good, but guarantee that I take your good card. For example, I say, oh, you have an Ancient Tomb and an Island. I'm going to go ahead and cast my Vendian Click, because that means that you're probably going to try and play something ridiculous with your show and tell. I think uh, one important point about control that we, uh, we haven't mentioned or have not really made good mention of is that uh, control inherently is going to be a harder archetype to play um, in any given in a given what oh yeah okay it's a hard deck to play just in terms of a number of decisions that you're making throughout a course of return but it's also a hard deck to build um, you really have to understand what uh, what kind of decks you'll be facing uh, which in turn will determine what uh, what kind of cards you want to include. For instance, uh, if you know you're going into a very aggro, aggro metagame, uh, you want to be including a lot of creature removal or ways to uh, nullify combat. Um, cards like Engineered Explosives, Moat, Humility, Wrath of God, Supreme Verdict, Terminus, Swords of Plashers, Path to Exile. Um, another example might be if you're going into a really combo heavy you may want to include more permission, like Fluster Storm, Spell Pierce, Force Will, Counterbalance, um, even basic old Counterspell, and I've even seen some uh, some lists run Mana Leak. Um, Matt, what are some other examples? So, I mean, you, you, you're trying to build the kind of quote-unquote perfect 75 to any kind of tournament. I don't think one can just play the general 75 cards and do well with you know, a given kind of control archetype. So, I mean, at least for Miracles, like, you want to make sure you have, like, enough creature removal. You want to maybe have something for artifacts and enchantments. Um, you want to have maybe a Pithing Needle or an Aethersworn Canonist or, or whatever. You want to be able to... Not a Torchbearer, Sam, no. You want to have... Um, maybe you want to run the Enlightened Tutor package over Spell Pierces, or maybe you want Vince or Shaper Savant, or you basically... I feel like if you're playing a control deck, you need to know your list very, very well. Know your outs. Play to them. I know that probably goes for any other deck. However, more so for 
for the control decks because you need to know your list you need to know your time limits as well can I win this game can I pull this out and sometimes I've seen a lot of people who are playing miracles are like oh yeah I have this out somewhere here there's a one of in the deck uh, I'll still keep playing when it's quite obvious that you've just been overrun and you need to quit because you need to save enough time a lot of legacy tournaments are running you know 45 to 50 minute rounds it's not a lot of time for the slower control decks yeah, that's something a lot of people I play with have actually commented on, is that I check the clock constantly, because uh, especially playing a Miracles deck, there are some times when you just say, you know what, I would rather concede and attempt to win two games in a row than take this game out for the next 20 or 30 minutes. Um, as a really good example of how Control is a really difficult deck to build, Miracles plays the countertop uh, combination. The countertop combination means that Every single card in your deck, you have to say, not only what does this do, you have to say, what does this flip and counter? So, for example, um, when I play against Omnitel with a countertop build, I'm siding in my Blood Moons, even though that doesn't get any of their cards, because it flips to counter their uh, show and tell. Also, as, yes, and as Matt is pointing out to me now, knowing the top three cards of your deck super important um i can say as someone who has a reasonably good memory and who has played countertop a fair amount watching someone top because they forgot that the card on top of their deck counters the spell is one of the most frustrating things i have ever watched and i have actually in a casual game after a tournament just kind of like smacked someone and said hey man there's already a one on top why are you spending a mana they should just concede. I mean, that's basically just like saying, I suck so bad at this deck, called counter Counterbalance, that, like, I can't even use the fucking card the deck is named after. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, you're allowed to take notes, and most players will. When they see someone's hand, they will take notes. A lot of players you'll see who don't have a great memory, they'll take notes on everything. So, for example, if somebody Caraxes back their Venser, they'll, they'll write down, okay, he's got a Venser in hand, keep that in mind. You need to do, if if you can't remember what the top three cards of your deck are, maybe kind of fold your notebook over a little so your opponent can't see it, and just write them down. It's, it's not gonna not hurt, hurt you anything dude, if you to have it written down and guarantee you numbers. Know. You should not be playing Magic. You should be fucking changing my oil at the fucking dealership. I mean, you're stone fucking retarded, or you're on you know Coilus if you can't remember three numbers. Not just knowing what they cost, you really do need to know what they are, because occasionally you need to tap draw with top and grab the card off the top without paying the mana. For example, if you have one planes open, and the only way to counter show and tell is to tap draw and enlighten tutor. Get, getting back on topic, um, another point with, with counterbalance and, uh, and top, but mostly specifically with top, is understanding what you're looking for uh, when you activate it spending close to 30 seconds trying to figure out how the three pieces um, that you that you look at um, playing to your game plan is really abusing the clock and, uh, and really that should be called uh, a slow play. So I've seen players uh, act activate and resolve top as quickly as five seconds. Um, I've seen players maybe take a little bit more time. I, I think anything more than 20 seconds is really pushing the clock though. Well, I think that's one of those things that kind of it kind of depends on context. Like, occasionally I'll be like, activate top, and I'll just flip the top two cards because I know what they are. There are some times when you need to, like, really sit and tank about it, but it kind of depends on the situation, and I think any judge who's going to be called on it is going to say, okay, yeah, this is one of those times when you really do need to talk, need to think about it. For demonstration purposes, for, for demonstration purposes, we're going to wait 20 seconds to show you how long of a time this actually is. I'm bored, holy uh, fuck. Yeah, like, I can't it's not even <laughs> been 10 seconds yet. <laughs> for 20 seconds. Yeah, I'd have to call a judge on something. Yeah, it's uh, it's really got to be a, an intuition feel. If um, if something feels like slow play, generally it's going to be slow play. Um, sometime, I mean, just the mechanics of it should take you only about 1 to 2 seconds. Uh, picking up the cards, taking a look at them. Um, setting them back, kind of keeping, keeping a watchful eye, remembering what you put back on top. I'd give it about 20 seconds tops for top. To be honest, I think 20 seconds is actually way more than generous. I mean, to, if it's three new cards, maybe. I mean, but usually, like, if, you're a, if you've played the deck enough, you're kind of like, okay, well, I have a one, a land, and a three. 
Okay, well, do I want to draw any of these? Well, the zero is probably useless. Put it on top. What's the next most common thing in their deck? One or three? Probably put the one on top. Cool, I've reordered. I've talked about it, and that took ten seconds. So you could probably do it in, like, five to seven. Knowing your opponent's deck list is also pretty damn important. That, that certainly helps out. Um, so I think like we covered a, a pretty good fundamentals of how to play against control, for instance. I mean, uh, how to play control. How do we play against control? How are strategies to beat it or uh, take advantage, for instance, of the slower clock? Well, one thing the control deck often needs is access to their hand. So, you know, any early game hand disruption. Um, again, they want to make the most out of every card in their hand. They want to make sure they get... Uh, usage out of everything, so a deck that can disrupt their hand early and follow it up with a threat um, is, is always a good strategy against control decks. There are also specific cards um, that Wizards has designed over the years to alleviate the frustration that people feel from getting their shit countered, so specific cards designed to hose, well, islands in general, and also, cards designed to just allow you to resolve your spells. I think the most prominent now is Cavern of Souls, but uh, Aether Vile, um, and then things to attack islands like Choke, um, attack them on the stack like with City of Solitude or Defense Grid. Um, all those things can frustrate a control player. You know, an active Aether Vile might might blank a great deal of the the permission spells in their hand. So. That's one way to attack them. Um, and the other way to attack them is sometimes just to overwhelm them. And I think that's where a lot of the the aggro control decks come into play. The most classic one is probably Merfolk. I mean, they can reach a critical mass of, you know, 16 power by the fourth or, fourth, fourth or fifth turn, all of which Island Walk. Um, they only need to pressure you into terminusing a turn earlier than you'd like to and just daze you right out of the game, so... Yeah, uh, Merfolk is actually exactly what I had in mind when we talk about how we want to beat Control. Because, as you said, Aether Vile, um, Cavern of Souls, you're playing a lot of stuff that's uncounterable. Uh, overwhelming them is awesome. Uh, if you have one, you only need two cards in hand, Force of Will and a blue card, to say, oh, you know what, that board wipe doesn't matter. Um, and even if they do board wipe, like, what's the worst that can happen? If they board wipe... You spend two or three turns getting more Merfolk out while all they've been doing is topping and getting a few more cards in play, cards into their hand. Another thing we talked about on the combo episode is if you're playing against a countertop uh, style deck, a really good play sometimes is just playing things in weird orders, like playing a one, then a two, then a three, then a one, then a two, then a three, just so that they have to reorganize their stuff uh, every single turn. So you want to play a one, and they say, okay, let me put a one on top, it's counter. And you say, okay, now I'll play a two. And they say, Okay, I'll play another mana and go ahead and get my two and put it on top. And you say, oh, now that you're tapped out, I'll go ahead and play my three that I actually care about. And I think um, also one one element that I've definitely utilized to great effect against the modern Miracles decks from uh, Maverick, um, Gadoctig. It seems like a lot of the control cards um, cost four or more or have X in them. So Jace, Supreme Verdict, Moat, Engineered Explosives, Elspeth, Terminus... And treat the angels. Um, Teague does a lot of, lot of powerful work against um, the modern control decks, and being able to protect the Teague is is a really strong play against that archetype. He's a cornerstone of Cavern of Advisors. Uh huh. So my take on it, like how to actually, yes, I know, naming advisor for your engineered plagues could be relevant. So. What you want to do, one of the, another card that is very, very good against at least the Miracle Control deck, Thalia, Galactig, and some sort of protection. So, like, the the Mother of Runes uh, Galactig draw is pretty darn good. I mean, stopping, like Jacob was saying, stopping, or Sylvan Safekeeper, stopping all of their, you know, Terminuses, Supreme Verdicts, etc. really good. Even if you just have Thalia, making their Brainstorms cost more, costing two... You have their counterspells are costing three. Uh, even delaying Supreme Verdict to turn five? Very good. You, you, you can, you're able to put more pressure on board, get them to a lower life before they're able to, say, Terminus or whatever they need to do. Uh, even Mind Sensor, again, because you're fiddling with their lands. It's a lot of fetch lands to go fetch those basic lands. Since you can't touch the basic lands, you might as well touch their actual fetching ability. So if they're not actually finding any lands... 
So I mean, anyone, any some, any kind of any hate bears or getting rid of their card advantage engines. So I mean, if you're able to say turn one Pithing Needle Sensei Divining Top, that's a huge kick in the nuts to any sort of miracles player. I mean, not being able to reorder anything or go dig for their miracles. I mean, that's that's the point of that deck. So I mean, if you're if you're really attacking that fundamental brick in that wall, the whole wall just comes down. One one card that I think um, that we touched upon as a key element for control decks um, is actually quite good against control decks as well. Uh, Planeswalkers, um, if you're able to slap down, let's say Garuk or Elspeth or uh, sometimes even Liliana, um, and able to essentially grind out uh, the activations in uh, to maximum effect and essentially just make the control player uh, expend a lot of resources trying to deal with that Planeswalker, you're able to gain a little bit of leverage. Um, one thing that we forgot to mention with Planeswalkers is that they provide an effect after they've resolved over returns. Um, and so you're able to utilize your mana on both sides, both from the control player as well as against the control player. Um, over returns um, for that free effect. Sorry, I mean, Sam and I are basically building Cavern of Advisors in the background here. <laughs> so we've got, all right, just let, this would be a segue. Cavern of Advisors, I'm, I'm serious. You've got, you know there's a ravenous rat that is also a human advisor? He's a corrupt court uh, official. He's pretty insane, right? Black one. And then you also have an actual advisor who can to any dude when he comes into play. So, like, he's actually a eunuch also, which is pretty sweet. You know what eunuchs actually are? Everyone knows? Yeah. 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 So, anyway, can you imagine cavern naming advisor casting a corrupt eunuch and killing your opponent's death right shaman with it? It's all about playing with, you know, those really techy, edgy cards to get your opponent. I mean... But not tech edge. No. God, no. And, and ready, so I think I, this is the last I'm going to say on Cavern Advisors, but <laughs> keep in mind, Imperial Recruiter is also an advisor. So, like, any advisor that you happen to need that minute, you can get it with Recruiter. You could even add uh, Aethervalt to really stick it to control. Yeah, yeah. Masako the Humorless, also an advisor. Anyway, moving on. I think that kind of hopefully wraps up our discussion about, you know, control decks, what they are, how to play them, how to beat them. Yeah, Sam, I think we got a young Phoenix, also an advisor. <laughs> God damn it, so, Sean. So let's move I, on I to... I think we've, we've wrapped up this uh, advisor discussion already. <laughs> so let's uh, let's talk about what we played last week. Any interesting plays? Anything we might be playing this week? What's going on? Events? Jacob? Sure. I'll bite. Um, so over last weekend, I got to play uh, Sneak Show again. Combo. Uh, taking a little uh, inspiration from our last podcast. And um, just so happens to be that I was uh, I found myself in top eight against a bracket that was completely filled with miracles. So uh, in the quarterfinals of the top eight, I got to play against miracles. And on the other side of that uh, semi bracket was mir miracles against miracles. So here I am sitting next to three miracle players, scratching my head, thinking, "Man, I really hope they don't play two Caracas, because that is a bitch of a card for show and tell." Really? Really, yeah. <laughs> I bested one of them, but then I lost to um, the ever master of miracles, Joe Lawson. Well, you should have been playing World Spine Worm plus Sneak Attack, and just got him. Yeah, that was uh, that was the deck I played uh, a couple weeks back to a uh, two and two record. So uh, wanted to at least redeem myself with some extra prizes. Walked away with a uh, Tropical Island, so pretty happy about that. Yeah, so for uh, for me, last week we had a qualifier for the Vancouver Summer Legacy Classic. And we didn't get too many people to show up, but uh, I was playing Bug Control. So basically, Bug Landstill without the Standstills, because everybody was playing Tempo. So I'm like, well, Standstill, not so good when they have a Delver down, right? So anyway, I ended up placing fourth and winning back a Snapcaster Mage. Wasn't too bad. I've been playing Miracles a few weeks before that, uh, blue-white-red Miracles, and it's been performing really well. I think I just need to tune up the sideboard a little bit. Should be should be good. I think Miracles is really well positioned right now. I know we've said this for ages, but yeah, I think it's I think it's really well positioned. What about what about Sean? Uh, well, I got to play Vintage Sunday night, so that was fun. Uh, we're starting a, a league that we're gonna run kind of four-week seasons. We're gonna give away a playmat and. Uh, 
play for some cash, beer money every week, but then also have it build up into a play mat that's going to be given out every season. So um, I took Wizards and um, sort of Esper Wizards vintage. And I left my time walking home, so I subbed to Hercules Recall in the last minute. But uh, I had a good time. I ended up going 2-2. Two and two. I lost to the other deck I brought, which was Caged Fury, which is like a hyper-aggro zoo deck with a bunch of hate cards in it. Um, and then I also lost to Dredge in a match where I believe I resolved all three of my Yigslid Jailers. And, I, and he had already exiled Dark Blast, and I still lost. So that shows you the power of... Uh, of vintage dredge. So I've been, as Matt was saying, I was also playing Miracles. Uh, I've made some kind of maybe odd changes recently. I took out the one of Caracas because I just figured my odds of drawing one Caracas fast enough for it to matter in the show-and-tell matchup just weren't strong enough to keep it. Uh, the other kind of maybe weird change I made was I did something that I did when I played Counterthopters, which is that I brought in a Seed of the Synod because an Enlightened Tutor for a land sometimes is worth it. Um, I kept a hand that was three lands, one of them a Tundra, Enlightened Tutor, Jace, and other junk. And I ended up winning the game on the back of Enlightened Tutor for Seed of the Synod, tap out, play Jace, and just slowly but surely win. Uh, my funniest story, though, of last week was I played a guy playing a reanimator deck that had no way to deal with enchantments. And when I played a turn two resin piece, he said, let me read that. And he read it, and he said, oh... That's really good against me. But he did play out the rest of the game, which did not go his way. Uh, next week, I'll be playing probably about the same thing. Like Matt said, I'm also tweaking my sideboard. Um, right now, I'm kind of weirded out by my sideboard. I'm playing a mountain in the sideboard because I'm playing two Red Blasts and a second Blood Moon, but I only have one Volcanic Main. Still trying to figure out what the rest of the cards need to be for my particular meta and for the national meta for when uh, I go to an upcoming Star City and in a couple months after that, or a couple months from now, GPDC, which might be the first ever Everyday Eternal meetup, maybe? Eh, we'll see. Minus one. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> Minus two. I'm, yeah, it's it's a far ways off to, uh, to burn vacation days. So I was playing reanimator testing against... Um, I think it was a Miracle deck. can't remember what he was playing, but he was playing Aethersworn Canonist and, like, Rest in Peace and stuff like that. So I'm testing... I'm I'm being, you know, bad guy playing Reanimator, and I'm playing a very techie, buried alive, dark ritual Reanimator deck with some show-and-tells main and show-and-tells on the side. Anyway, it's been testing pretty well. So I managed to... Um, I managed to show-and-tell a Terracidon into play, and... Uh, my opponent didn't really have anything that I wanted to blow up except a rest in peace. So I blew up the rest in peace. And then he plays another rest in peace and he's got canonist and I'm really like, ugh, what is going on? So I managed to draw into a chain of vapor. I chain of vapor his canonist at end of turn and then next and then he chain of vapors by sacking a land, getting my Terastodon. And then I proceed to triple dark ritual, triple show and tell Terastodon. Uh, what was it? Uh, Sphinx of the Steel Wind and something else. I think it was frickin' um, Gristlebrand or something like that. And then I just proceeded to crush him. It was great. I blew up my own lands off the Terracidon and and just went aggro. It was I love great. Sphinx of the Steel Wind. He's, he's my fucking favorite reanimator target. I know he's been completely obsoleted, but that guy is a fucking baller. No, he's still so good, though. Like, I mean, again, some of the decks, I mean, sure, some decks just don't care. But sometimes the life matters, right? And I have one in Russian, so I might as well play it. I mean, it's smaller than a Gristlebrand, and it doesn't draw you cards. So I feel to see the argument there. Um, but one you can't always thing, draw cards anyway. Sometimes um, I like having the first strike lifelink. So funny story about that. Don't pay seven life to go down to one life to try to counterspell a Jace. That won't end up well. In another uh, good story, um, I recently on Saturday night I was playing a local legacy, and I got an opportunity to reanimate the, the, with the actual reanimate cards. So losing eight life, a Grizzlebrand to play. You know, uh, I'm playing Tin Fins uh, for funsies, and I, you know, draw cards naturally because my opponent's playing a uh, mono red deck. So throw caution to the wind and just be reckless. 
Uh, the first card I draw off that is Children of Corliss and a fetch land. So uh, naturally I go back up to 20 and start uh, going, uh, going into turbo mode. Out of that though, the new legendary rule actually came up um, very beneficial for me because I was able to ritual and tomb the second Grizzlebrand, shallow grave it, and then bin the one that I had just reanimated. So where in the past it would have killed both of them, under the new rules I'm now able to bring into play with haste and attack. So kind of some new tricks to uh, get familiar with and uh, hopefully blow some people out. And that's all we have for you today. As always, thank you for listening. You can give us your feedback by emailing everydayeternalcast at gmail.com, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash everydayeternalpodcast, and follow us on Twitter at eternalmtg. Flash! Ah! Protector of the stack! Ah! I got... Two birds in paradise. They're gonna tap it and make my man a nice. I got right, two.